John chapter 1. One of the great biblical statements, I believe, in all of, of the Word of God is found in these first three verses of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There, there's always a, a sense of excitement for me as, as a teacher and beginning a, a new course of study, in this case the Gospel according to John the Apostle. So much has been said and written about this gospel that there aren't enough pages in a book or hours in a day or words in a dictionary to express those sentiments. In fact, the gospel of John has well been called the greatest book in the world. While it would be wise at the onset of our study to consider that the gospel of John is the fourth section of what some call the fourfold gospel with four voices giving different perspectives on the life of Jesus. But I want you to understand that these are not four separate and, and uh, very individual perspectives, though they are separate and individual in, in one sense. But not just the ideas of four men. All four of these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is nothing in the four Gospels that is contradictory one to the other. But the perspectives are important for us. And so the understanding is that there are really four Gospels as there is one fourfold Gospel. There's not, in other words, not so much that there's four Gospels as there is one fourfold Gospel. One major picture of Jesus in four picture frames, as it were. But with that in mind, let's, let's look at the four Gospels for just a moment so, so that we might notice the uniqueness of the Gospel of John. The Gospels, by the way, the word used in the Scriptures for Gospel is the Greek word evangelion, which means good news. So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke these Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels. Simply because they include many of the same accounts in the life of Jesus, often in a similar sequence and in similar wording. The term Synoptic literally means seen together or to be seen together. So when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you, you realize you read many of the same accounts, many of the same uh, 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 stories, or as it were, uh, uh, parables and, and whatnot. But from a little different perspective of each. But as we get into the Gospel of John, we will see that the focus really is different from the other three. 
Take, for example, that John focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem while the other Gospels focus on Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. More is seen of what Jesus does as he is among the people in the, go- in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But immediately, John has us in Jerusalem. John focuses more on who Jesus is as the Son of God while the other gospel writers focus on what Jesus taught. It's not to say that they don't also focus on, on, on him being the Son of God, and that Jesus, or I should say John doesn't mention some of the things that, that, that Jesus taught and, and some of the things that Jesus did. The focus is more on who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. And as we shall see, John builds his Gospel around seven miracles. And we won't talk about those today, but we will mention them next time. But he builds the gospel around seven miracles and seven I am statements made by Jesus. The I am statements, for example, I am the bread of life. Or when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. These are two of those seven I am statements. What they also tell us is that Jesus is, in fact, proclaiming himself to be God. I will talk about that in just a moment in more detail. But most significantly, John gives us his whole purpose of writing this gospel near the end of the gospel itself. If you will turn to John chapter 20 for just a moment. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We want to know what the purpose is of the writing of this letter, or of this gospel, I should say. In John 20, verse 30, John writes, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did so many more things. Certainly we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke to show us some of the things that, of course, that uh, he, uh, John didn't mention. But they even still, even in those three Uh, volumes. Uh, There wasn't everything that Jesus actually did while he was on this earth. And they're not written in the book of John. But then he says this in verse 31, but these are written that you might believe. So here's the purpose. These things that are written, these things that you have seen in the last 19 and, and the most of the 20th chapter, as well as what was, what will be following in chapter 21, all of this as it goes, uh, as, as it's being written, all of this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, that Jesus is indeed the Mashiach, that he is indeed the anointed one, the called of God, the son of God. He is Jesus the Christ, the son of God, and these are written so that you will believe this and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, I would encourage you to keep your finger here in chapter 20. We will come back to this verse in just a little while. So you see, the, the main purpose for the gospel then is that the reader or the listener would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, his purpose is to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. His purpose is to bring people to the salvation that comes only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is John's great purpose as an evangelist. 
Oftentimes we hear that he's called John the Evangelist. Now I know that some people say that that's another person. But truly John is an evangelist here because that is his purpose in this particular gospel written for our ears, for our hearts, and for our spirits. So, let me say once again, John has written this so that the reader or listener would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world, so that they might have that abundant life that is only found in Him. That they might have that abundant life that is only found in Him. The life that Jesus Himself said only comes from Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have, have, possess everlasting life. In fact, the word believe the word pisteo in the, in the Greek is used by John some 98 times in this gospel alone. 98 times he uses the word believe. Now, would you not say that's significant? I certainly would. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as well. Hence, the gospel of John then is a great book for someone who is searching for God because the apostle John paints that picture for all of us so that we would believe. I would not doubt at all that many of us here in this room came to know Jesus Christ because someone shared with us some portion of the Gospel of John so that we might see what Jesus came to do for us as sinners. And I would really encourage you. This is a challenge, by the way. I'm putting a challenge out to you today. If you know people that that are are hungry for God, they're, they're searching for God, and they want to know the Lord, and they're, they're curious about things, I would encourage you to bring them to church. Bring them on Sunday mornings to hear this study on the Gospel of John. What an opportunity it is to bring somebody to hear this Gospel that is supposed to be there to change lives. And for many of us, our lives were changed because of the Word of God in the Gospel of John. So that's my challenge to you. We can fill up all these other chairs around us with people that really need to know Jesus Christ. And they'll hear it in the Gospel of John. Charles R. Erdman, a fine 20th century commentator, once said that this fourth Gospel has introduced more persons to follow Christ. It has inspired more believers to loyal service. It has presented to scholars more difficult problems than any other book that could be named. And I truly believe that. In other words, we can say that the Gospel of John was written to be evangelistic in nature and purpose so that it would lead people to possession of life in His name. Possession of eternal life. Possession of everlasting life. Possession of abundant life. I'm not talking about anything that we can possess in this life that will only die here. I'm talking about that which will never die. And that will, for the person who believes, have salvation that will allow us to live forever. That's pretty good, I think, don't you think? To have that truth and that knowledge. Let's consider some preliminary data, though, as as we get into our study of of the Gospel of John. John probably wrote this Gospel in Ephesus around the years 85 to 95 A.D., 
more than likely right in the middle, about 90 A.D., the, a lot of people believe uh, this gospel was written. And uh, the church held that position uh, till about, uh, about 150 years ago when these uh, very liberal revisionist scholars began, to, and I use the word scholar loosely here, at least for them, they, they began to uh, <clears throat> say that actually uh, the Gospel of John wasn't written by John, it was written by somebody else about 150 years after John died. Now, if John died around the year 100 A.D., then uh, about 150 years later, so that would take you through the, uh, the 200s into the uh, early uh, 300s, or the 4th century, as it were. And uh, they said uh, somebody else wrote this gospel. And you would wonder, why would they... They say that. Well, well, first of all, we would wonder what their proof is. There certainly were a lot of other writings that uh, needed to be uh, uh, scrutinized, but they were scrutinizing the, the writing of the gospel. They were scrutinizing the writing of an apostle. Why would this be? Well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, there is one thing that is very clear, very clear in the Gospel of John, and that is that John gives us clear testimony without any doubt and without any reservation of the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ indeed is God the Son, not just the Son of God. Because again, in the Gospel of John, we are told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is very clear in the Greek and in the English, and in any other language, if, it, if you, if you uh, uh, translate it properly. Now, there have been people who haven't translated that verse very properly, like the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have translated it uh, quite differently. They've perverted, actually, the translation. But in fact, it does say, the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it tells us, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that we beheld His glory, the glory of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I would say that that's very clear. And that's just in the first chapter. But then I mentioned to you the seven miracles of Jesus that could only be done by the one who is the anointed one, the one who is the called one, the one who is the Messiah and the Christ. And not only that, but then I mentioned that there are seven I Am statements. I am coming from where? That's the name of God. Coming from Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is out uh, tending flocks out in the desert and he sees a burning bush and he goes to this burning bush only to discover that the bush is not consumed and yet from out of this burning bush comes a voice that speaks to Moses and when Moses asks his name, he says, I am that I am. Pretty clear. That's God's name. And Jesus makes seven statements in the Gospel of John to tell us. So already we are realizing, we have, if we haven't, I'm sure most of you have read the Gospel of John, but if, even if you haven't read the Gospel of John, already I've, I've let you know that there are certain things that the Gospel of John has already revealed to us that let us know that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but God the Son. And that is just something that revisionist, liberal, skeptical scholars of the late 19th century and 20th centuries just do not like, simply because they've taken the position that Jesus never proclaimed Himself to be God. 
We know that seven, we know at least seven that, uh, where he did proclaim himself to be God. So where do they get this idea? Well, the idea comes more than ever from perverted writings that can never prove that Jesus never said that he was God. So these liberal theologians wanted just to rock the foundation of Christianity with their so-called new findings. And they said, well, the Gospel of John wasn't written by John, and it was written way after John's death, really. Well, thankfully, unfortunately for them, but thankfully for us, a fragment of a manuscript of John chapter 18 was found in Egypt in 1920. And that fragment was dated to be around 125 A.D which indicated that a copy of the Gospel of John was circulated widely to make it to Egypt because, of course, once this, this was a, a, a letter that circulated the churches, it obviously made it into the canon of Scripture. Nonetheless, it made it to Egypt in, in the rounds within, the 20, within 25 years of the writing of this, actually about 40 years of the writing and 25 years from the, the time of, uh, of, uh, of John's death. And it made it to Egypt by 125 A.D., meaning that the case for a 85 to 95 uh, uh, date of, of authorship still held true. So that's just for your information. But it's significant and quite necessary to note that while it is considered a gospel that is written to the Greek mindset, and a lot of people will argue that it is written just to a Greek mindset because of the very first verse. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos is the Greek word for, uh, for word. And I'm going to go into that study of that word next week. So we won't get into that now. But nonetheless, it is, is a Greek word. And most people say, well, that, you know, that, that, that word actually comes through Greek philosophies. And, and there's some philosophical thoughts about what the word logos means. But in fact, and I'm going to show you that there's, there's really more of, a, of, of, of this gospel being a gospel that is very Jewish. And it tends to emphasize the Hebraic understanding of Jesus' life. And I would say very simply because John was Jewish. Y'all do know that, right? Okay. So in this regard, consider that Matthew's Gospel presents Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jewish. The fulfillment of what the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures spoke of regarding the Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel, he quotes or alludes to the Hebrew Scriptures 129 times. Definitely written to the Hebrew mindset. Also, the genealogy of Matthew shows us that Jesus is a descendant of David. No doubt about that. Then you come to the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as a suffering, or the suffering servant, I should say. The suffering servant that is connected, of course, to Isaiah chapter 53. But we know that this is about the suffering servant because we are told in Mark 10, verses 44 and 45, And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And then it is clearly made to us uh, the understanding of Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. In other words, he came not to be served, but to serve, to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So we know that the Gospel of Mark centers around Jesus being a servant. But interestingly enough, there are no genealogies of Jesus in Mark's Gospel because the genealogies of slaves or servants were not important. That becomes another uh, uh, Jewish understanding. 
So his gospel, even though it was written primarily to the Roman mindset, still keeps us focused on Hebraic understanding. And then Luke. Now some people think that Luke was not Jewish. As a matter of fact, a lot of people teach that Luke was, in fact, a Gentile. I mentioned this past uh, Wednesday night as we were studying through Daniel chapter 4, and we mentioned that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, actually uh, has written this edict that he writes in in chapter 4, uh, actually is, is the only non-Jew that is written in the scriptures. Therefore, you know, we have to kind of consider that Luke might have been Jewish. Uh, and, and, uh, but that's another, for another time. Nonetheless, Luke shows us the humanity of Jesus. He shows us another perspective, a, a very important perspective. The humanity of Jesus, the Son of Man. And so, in the genealogy in Luke's Gospel we are taken all the way back to the first man, Adam, to bring identification to our Lord's humanity with us. In other words, He has identified with humanity so that He can come and save us. And because Jesus took upon Himself flesh, we can identify with Him as the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. And while Matthew demonstrated that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and Mark demonstrated that Jesus was the precious servant, and Luke, (coughs) excuse me, demonstrated that Jesus was the perfect man, John will demonstrate to us that Jesus is profoundly and powerfully God the Son. In fact, if you want to give a theme to the Gospel of John, it is the eternal Son of God eternal God, the Son. Now, we would think for a moment that we have the Gospel of Matthew, of Matthew, of Mark, and of Luke, and then John kind of completes the picture of Jesus. That we have a complete picture of our Savior, a complete picture of our Redeemer. May I say to you that it is wrong to think that the Gospel of John actually completes the story of Jesus? You see, John tells us that the story of Jesus is so great in size and scope that it can never be completed. He tells us that in John chapter 21, verse 25, when he says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And he ends it by saying, Amen. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written about Jesus and the things that Jesus is doing and the things that Jesus does and the the things that, that show who Jesus is. Do you know that your life as it goes on in Christ, your life is continually being written and Jesus is being written in your life? Is your life completed yet? Is your life completed yet? No, of course not. I'm glad. Please please keep going here today, all right? You keep, let's keep your heart beating and, you know, and everything. You know why? Because he's still writing his chapter in you. That's why it's not completed. You know why the book of Acts doesn't end with an amen? Because it goes on. The Holy Spirit's still here. Jesus is still here. We still have the Word of God and we still have people to reach for Christ. The book of Acts isn't completed 
until the Lord completes it all when He comes. So let's, let's have that understanding today. So let's continue on and, and, and look at John now as the author. Whoop, I didn't give you the last part. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written and it says, Amen. So let's remember how precious that is. All right, let's look at John the author. John doesn't tell us much about himself in the gospel record. But we can put together a few things about him when we find them all in, in, in all of the gospels. First of all, John had a father and his father's name was Zebedee. We know that. We know that his mother's name was Salome. Some believe she was one of the women who went to the tomb of Jesus early in the day of his resurrection. It's also thought that Salome might also be the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. Possible, which, mean, which means that if that's the case, then John is, is Jesus' cousin. We know that John had a brother and his name was James. Together they were partners in the fishing business with a man named Simon Peter. John and his brother James were known by their nickname, Sons of Thunder. They actually wore that on their tunics, you know, Sons of Thunder. You know. A lot of people wear stuff on their shirts that say stuff, you know. It's also interesting that John never refers to himself by name in the gospel account. He never calls himself by name. If the, if the name John appears, it is referring to the Baptist. But John the Apostle only refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're going to spend some time talking about that particular statement when it comes up. Now, as I've already mentioned, the seven miracles, and I've mentioned the seven I am statements of Jesus, upon which John builds his gospel. And by the way, I, I, I failed to mention earlier that uh, the I am statements alone also need to be understood that this shows us, the again, the Hebraic, understanding of the Gospel of John. I want to mention to you also something to add to those seven miracles and the seven I am statements. There are seven terms. Seven terms that are found in John chapter 20 verse 31. Remember I told you to keep your finger there. Please go back there. John 20 verse 31. Because there are seven terms found in this verse that are characteristic of the entire Gospel. Seven terms that are characteristic of the entire gospel in one verse. So let's look at that verse. You'll notice I've underlined a few words. But these are written, John said, the things that are written about Jesus in this gospel, these are written that you might believe, there's the first word or term, that you might believe that Jesus, the second term, Jesus, the name of Jesus, is the Christ, the third term. The fourth term is the Son of God. And that believing you might have, have is an, a single term. The, the, the sixth is life. And then the seventh through His name. His name. So believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have have life through His name. Seven very important terms that are characteristic of the entire Gospel of John. Let's begin with the word believe. We've already talked about it. We've already mentioned it earlier. 
that this word is used 98 times in John's Gospel. I would say that's significant. I would say that 98 times if something is mentioned, it is extremely important. Compare that, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew uses that word believe 11 times. That doesn't mean that Matthew didn't believe. God inspired the the gospel of Matthew and there were many other things that were written there to bring us to faith and bring us to belief in the things of, of, of Christ. But he only uses that word 11 times. Mark, which is a, uh, a smaller gospel than Matthew's, he uses it 15 times. It's significant. It's a significant use of a word, believe, to trust, to have confidence in. The Gospel of Luke only uses it nine times. Ninety-eight times. That is significant and a significant characteristic found in the Gospel of John. It is found in the earliest chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, and throughout the whole of the Gospel until it climaxes in the message to Thomas. You remember after Jesus' resurrection that the apostles were gathered together and Jesus appeared among them. And all along, this one apostle would not believe that Jesus had risen risen from the dead. In fact, he said, you know what, I will only believe if I can put my hand in his wounds. If I can see the wounds and put my hand in them. And Jesus appears. And eventually, the Lord has this single conversation with Thomas And notice what he tells him in John 20, verse 29. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You know who Jesus is speaking about? You. He's talking about you. You haven't seen, but you believe. Well, I hope you do. You see? I hope you do. That's the importance of this this word. It climaxes right here in a personal way. Of course, the word is mentioned a a few more times after that. Belief. We have to ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus Christ? And then there's the name Jesus itself. Jesus. An historic name, a truly historic name. Why do I mention that? Well, you see, we have to understand that a lot of people are doubters of a lot of things. There are people that doubt that uh, the Holocaust ever happened. Some people doubted that uh, the landing on the moon in 1969 ever happened. You all remember that? How many of you remember 1969 and and that happening? Let me see your hand. No, I want to see your hands. Let me see you. Raise them up. Well, you guys are old, man. Look at all them young people. They weren't weren't around. What's fascinating about this stuff is a lot of people, maybe even in this room today, eh, they've never lived without Internet. 
We didn't know what internet was. I didn't know what a cell phone was. What's a cell phone, man? Is a phone you put in your cells, you know, inside of you? Kind of crazy. 1969, we landed on the moon. There were people that were saying, I don't believe that, man. You know what? That's Hollywood. They, they did the Hollywood thing to fake everybody out. Okay. So a lot of people don't believe a lot of stuff. They have to see it to believe it, right? Jesus is truly historic. He's been written into history. In fact, we can't really have history without Jesus being at the center of it. All of time centers around Jesus. B.C., A.D., or as they have it now, B.C.C., you know, before the common, or B.C.A., before the common, or B.C.E., before the common era. Because they don't want to mention the name of Christ, before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. That, that's the way it was for thousands of years. Truly an historic name, but it touches, that name touches all of humanity. The very simple name of Jesus, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, Yeshua, which means God is salvation. God is salvation not for just a certain amount of people or certain people or a certain race. God is salvation for all. It touches each and every one of us. And nowhere is that clearly, uh, is that characteristic clearly set forth than in this gospel, the gospel of John. And then there's the term, the Christ. The term that signifies the Jewish Messiah. The term that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When man has fallen in sin because of the temptation of the serpent, and God tells the serpent that a seed will come, the seed of the woman. And that seed would come through the line of Seth to Noah to, and from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, to Isaac to Jacob and Jacob all the way down to David and David all the way down to Jesus. Significant name. And then there's the Son of God. Another title of Jesus found in the first chapter and illustrated throughout the whole of the Gospel. There is no title found more frequently than the Son with its systematic connection to the Father. You find terms where it talks about the Father, you realize the connection of the Son, the Son of God. But then John uses the word have. A unique word that is characteristic of John, that is used to imply conscious possession of spiritual things, having, holding, obtaining, and retaining. We see it very clearly early on in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have. Have everlasting life. Have to have, to possess, to hold. Having obtained because it was given, and then retaining it, holding it preciously to our lives. 
How precious is that eternal life to you? How precious is that everlasting life to you this day? Because of what Jesus Christ did on a cross 2,000 years ago. John captures that in a simple word, have. Do you have everlasting life? Do you have it today in Jesus Christ? Do you have it because you received it from Him? For as many as received it from Him and received Him have the power to to be the sons of God. Do you have everlasting life? Life. That's the next term. Zoe in the Greek. Much different word than bios. B-I-O-S from which we get the word biology which is pretty much just talking about physical life. But John uses the word life referring to the inward and spiritual reality as distinct from the outward and visible expression. The inward reality that lasts forever. Jesus uses that word very clearly in John chapter 10. That he came that you might have life, zoe, and have it more abundantly. Abundant life. The inner and spiritual reality. Not the outward things. Those are blessings too. But these, these bodies, the, the physical parts, the bios, can die away. But not the zoe. By the way, the word is used 36 times in John. Compare that to Matthew who only uses it seven times. And Mark who uses it four times. And and Luke who uses it six times. It is significant. As a characteristic of John's gospel. Lastly. His name. His name. The name of Jesus. Excuse me. I get all choked up inside (laughs) when I think of the name of Jesus. Now we've talked about the name Jesus, but I'm talking about His name, His authority, His power. It is a phrase that is completely characteristic of John. It occurs no less than 11 times in chapters 14 through 17. But he also uses it before that in John 1. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That believe on his name, on his authority, on his power, and his sovereignty that comes only From God the Father. To them gave he power. To become the sons of God. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have become a son or a daughter of God because you have believed in the authority and the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Think about John 2, verse 23, where it is used again, where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now you would have to say that they had a little help. You know, they saw the miracles and so they believed. But that's okay. The fact of the matter is they believed in this person who had power and authority in the things that he did. Who else had they ever seen who had the authority to speak life, to speak healing, to speak deliverance, to speak salvation as Jesus did? They believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. Because no one had they ever seen, had the kind of authority that Jesus had. No one had the power that Jesus ever had. And they believed in His name. And then in chapter 3, as already mentioned, John writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And then you see in verse 18, it says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. What do you believe in? Upon what have you placed your faith? Upon whom have you placed your faith? Upon what name have you placed your faith today? If it isn't in the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us very clearly that there is no other name by which a person can be saved, but in the name of Jesus Christ. For in that name is the authority and the power given to save. No greater name. And so the whole of the gospel then, the whole of the Gospel of John is built on the truths that are associated with these seven terms. The life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is intended to be the basis and the inspiration of our faith. Listen, everybody on this, on, on this planet believes in something or someone. Even Bob Dylan taught us that in a song that he, that he sang. Years ago. Some of you are saying, who's Bob Dylan? How many of you know who Bob Dylan is? Let me see. All the oldies again, raising their hands. He sang a song about serving. Everybody serves somebody. You can serve the devil, you can serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. That was the song. Same goes for who we believe in. Who are we serving? Who do we believe in? 
Every fact, you see, every fact concerning Jesus is, the, is to be a factor in our lives. Every fact concerning Him is to be a factor and a force in us. That is what the Gospel of John intends to do to our lives. It, it becomes the fact that motivates our faith, that feeds our faith, that strengthens our faith, and that helps us to grow in our trust in Jesus Christ. So let me close with these thoughts. And by the way, when I say that we're going to close, doesn't mean we're going to close in a minute or two. could be a while. But we're going to close with this. There are four Gospels and one Christ. Amen? There are four Gospels and one Christ. There are four records, but there's only one goal, one aim, to know Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus, one Jesus. There are four pictures given, but one, one person at the center of those four pictures. It's Jesus. It has been said that Matthew demonstrates the coming of the promised Savior. Mark depicts the life of a powerful Savior. Luke declares the grace of a perfect Savior. But John, John describes the possession of a personal Savior. And yes, He is a personal Savior. I've often wondered why it is that some people actually believe, even in the church today, in some portions of the church, you know, they, they, they kind of get down on us who, who are evangelistic, who, who believe in bringing people to Christ as their personal Savior. You know, we use that term and they say, what, what do you mean personal Savior? Well, let, let's, let's look at it. Let's, let's, let's look at that statement. Is he, is he not a personal Savior for you? Did he not... Did Jesus not die on a cross 2,000 years ago in your place? That cross was really for us, individually as well as corporately, but it was there for us. When He says to us, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, is He not just speaking to those of us who are laboring and are heavy laden? And He says to us, I'll give you rest. Doesn't that just hit us at the, at the most personal point of our lives? Is he, not a, uh, is he not a personal Savior? Did He not save you from your sins? Did He not save you from the, from the ravages of what those sins would have caused if, if you had fallen deep into, into death in your sins and, and you'd be separated from Him forever? Is it not a personal Savior who, have re, who has rescued you? Oh, listen, John describes the possession of a personal Savior. I know He's a personal Savior. I spoke to Him this morning. And He's speaking back. Oh, let's not, let's, let's not listen to the voices in the world that are going around you know, mocking us. It's alright, let them speak. I don't listen to them. We listen to a still, small voice. A voice that comes from a person who loves us with an everlasting love. And every day he 
he makes himself available if we'll only come. If we'll only get on our knees and seek his face. If we'll only get away from our internet and our, and our cell phones and our, and, and, and our games and, and everything else that we do and get to be face to face with the one who loved us and gave his life for us. Will it not change our lives day by day? But eventually, will it not save? Will it not change our lives forever? That's how much He loves you. That's how much He cares for you. That's personal. I'm glad He's a personal Savior. And by the way, Mark and Matthew and Luke—they they also teach us that. But John is profound in it. Each gospel has been given a significant, crucial hallmark from the, from the Hebrew scriptures. Each gospel has been given a significant and crucial hallmark. A hallmark is like a trademark, but it's, it's, it's a guarantee as well. And each gospel has been given this guarantee from the Hebrew scriptures. And each gospel proclaims this hallmark. For example, Matthew Behold, thy king. Matthew, that speaks of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The priestly tribe, or I should say the the royal tribe. Behold, thy king. Comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Notice what it says. It's two parts here for us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass or a donkey, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. Who is that describing? But Jesus, who not many days before he goes to the cross, enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. Behold thy king. The people just began to shout and throw palm leaves before him. What were they saying? Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. And not long after that, they said, crucify him. Crucify him. The hallmark that we find in, in the Gospel of Mark is, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. It can speak of only one person, the person of Jesus, who will, when he comes again, Judge the nations. But before he does, he has shown himself to be the servant of his Father. Behold the perfect servant. And then the hallmark that is found in Luke, behold the man. If Jesus does not take upon himself flesh, what hope do we have? Behold, the man. 
But that comes from Zechariah 6, verse 12. It says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. It could only speak of one person. It speaks of Jesus Christ. The branch we spoke of a little bit last week and into which we are grafted in. Lastly, and most importantly for us as we're getting into the Gospel of John, the hallmark in John is behold your God. Behold your God. There is no doubt that on nearly every page of the Gospel of John will we find some reference to the fact that Jesus is indeed deity. He is not only the Son of God, He is God the Son. And we close with Isaiah 40 verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. There, near Zion, on the side of the north, in the city of Jerusalem, just outside the gates, there stood an old rugged cross. The emblem, as the old hymn says, of suffering and pain. And it was on that cross that our Savior died. And when lifted up, all eyes will focus on Him. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And the scripture says, behold, your God. who loved you with an everlasting love and who loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And so we begin our journey and our adventure into the Gospel of John. May God give us grace, wisdom, and understanding as we grow in Christ. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your mercy and for your grace allowing us this precious privilege to begin this gospel and the studies in this gospel. 
We pray, Father, that even now, as you pour as you pour out your Spirit upon us, that you will help us, Lord, to retain those things that are of great importance to us spiritually. That we will make it our great desire to study more and to meditate on these things today. And as we go ahead and read and read through this gospel, that you will continue to give us the wisdom necessary to not only understand it, but Lord, to live it out by faith in our lives. That is certainly what we want to do. That is certainly what we intend to do as we lay aside our flesh as we declare ourselves dead unto the world and alive unto Christ. And as we look for the day of Jesus approaching, we pray that you will give us, Lord, day by day, every opportunity to encourage people who need you and and need to know Jesus to come to hear your words of life. Bless us as we leave this place today. Be with us, guide us, guard us, protect us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.